0: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today, I'm joined by someone whose voice you might recognize, one Tracy V. Wilson, co-host of the podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thank you so much for joining us, Tracy.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you. And today we're talking about something we both really enjoy, tabletop gaming. So That's true. It's going to be really fun. And a peek behind the scenes, I used to produce and edit a show that Tracy and Holly hosted previously called Pop Stuff.
1: Yes. Were you were you uh, our producer when we did the episode that we did about tabletop games way back then?
0: I was. I was. <laughs> So we're, like, coming full circle.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had some some shifts in who did what, and I couldn't remember exactly where that fell in the timeline.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I was the producer the entire time of that show. It was really fun to work on, too.
1: It was. It was a fun deal.
0: It was. Today, as I mentioned, we are talking about tabletop gaming, and I think it would probably be a good thing to start with a definition. Um, when we say tabletop games... What do we mean? What does that encompass?
1: I think it encompasses everything that's meant to be played around a table. So it goes from card games to role-playing games to board games to uh, anything that you would get in a group and play around a table. I also know that some people have kind of a more exclusive definition than that. And they only want to include the ones that they think are real games. Oh. That sounds very similar <laughs> to, like, the whole
0: video game debate of, like, the exactly. real exactly.
1: Yeah. It has... Sometimes you will talk to folks that they, they don't want to think that Clue is a tabletop game because you can just buy that at the regular toy store. And I think what? that's a silly argument.
0: I agree. That is very <laughs> silly. Uh, we are a big tabletop game playing office here. Um, We have a tabletop gaming night once a month at work and a group of us in office, as you've heard me mention before on the show, I think, uh, we are in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign and I'm about to Dungeon Master for the first time. Very (laughs) nervous, very excited. Both.
1: (laughs) That is, that's one of the things I'm envious about and not, not working locally to the rest of you is that that is a thing that I don't get to participate in.
0: Yeah, well, if you're ever, like, next time you're in town, we should move the date and make it happen.
1: <laughs> Have Tracy's sort of one-shot, <laughs> expendable character showing up in the campaign. We can make this happen, Tracy.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, and I one thing I wanted to note here, because we are going to be looking at diversity and women in tabletop gaming, but the, the crew that I play with is about, even in terms of male to female, in fact, I think it's more female generally. We do get a... A you know, one-shot player come in sometimes, it shifts the ratio, but on, on average it's even. It's even.
1: Yeah, I have three role-playing games that I'm playing in right now. None of them are playing every week. One's every two weeks, and the other two are usually once a month. And one of the games, sometimes I'm the only woman at the table. It it depends a little bit on who's available that day. Uh, one of the others is about a 50-50 and my favorite of the games not to diss any of the gms running these games <laughs> but my favorite of the game has four players only one is a man and the guy running the campaign is a man but the fact that the men are in the minority is a nice change of pace in yeah. that world for me
0: yeah um and i i'm pretty new to the whole thing this this campaign i'm playing with coworkers is the first time i've ever played So I haven't experienced much outside of that. I have played online since I started this in-person campaign. So that is an option
1: that it's a thing. Yeah, my husband runs several campaigns that he does exclusively online. And he used to run a local campaign that had mostly local people, but a couple of people who had moved out of state and they were looped in on Google Hangout or Skype or something similar. So... That is a thing that can be done. There are whole tools <laughs> to let people do that more efficiently and have, you know, little figurines on the screen of where people's characters are and oh, that kind of thing.
0: Cool. Uh, yeah, we were doing it um, on Google Hangouts, and I'm a slow typer, and that was the, my biggest <laughs> problem I encountered was people would get there before me, and I'd have to retype something else. Um But if if you don't, if you want to play and maybe doing it in person isn't an option, that is something that you could look into. Yeah. Um, What is your history, Tracy, in tabletop gaming? How did you get into it?
1: Well, when I was a kid, we had some of the standard games that folks often have when they're children at home, like Candyland and Chutes and Ladders and that kind of thing. But it was really, my grandmother had two games. They were Monopoly and Battleship. And so my brother and my cousin and I, we were the only three cousins on that side of the family. And every time we went to visit my grandmother, we would play one of those games. Although normally, for some reason, it was me and my cousin ganging up on my brother until he would get so mad he would throw the board, which is not... (laughs) A productive way to play a game. <laughs> <laughs> no. It set the stage maybe, for <laughs> later rivalry. Oh. Uh, but that was the real starting point. I kind of went on a journey from there mm-hmm. that, that was not so much about tormenting my brother, uh, just a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> maybe sometimes. Yeah, I
0: Our work, uh, Game Night, we've banned Monopoly. And uh, I remember distinctly as a child, I've never won a game of Monopoly, ever. And I even cheated more than once and still (laughs) lost. Monopoly
1: is one of the most maligned games, I
0: think. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And one of the interesting things about it is that it's based on a game called the Landlord's Game, which was developed by a woman who was developing this game because she wanted to show the dangers of capitalism. So it actually had two different sets of rules. One set of rules was based on this proposed tax change that was going to be way more equal in the distribution of wealth. And the other was like the, the monopolist's rule set. And those rules made, meant that, you know, one person became really, really rich and everybody else lost their money. And the whole idea was to show everybody that that was... But, you know, the danger of capitalism, right. <laughs> but when later on, first someone stole her idea and then bought her patent for a tiny amount of money, uh, they kept only the rules for the capitalists because it's uh more fun, I guess, to play that way. Um, her name was Lizzie McGee. There's a whole story there, <laughs>
0: yeah. um, I want to play her version of Monopoly.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of having a version of Monopoly where the whole purpose is that everyone winds up with enough money. Right.
0: (laughs) That's almost difficult for me to imagine. Um, I also got into tabletop gaming when I was pretty young, although similar to video games, which I also got into when I was young, I I wouldn't have called myself a tabletop gamer until recently, even though it was something I was doing. Um, I just didn't think of it in that way. But when I was little, we had a whole board game closet, and I used to semi-look forward to um, when the power would go out because it meant that my whole family would gather in the living room, and we would usually have a fire or candles, and we would play board games. And there was something I loved about there's no TV, no video games. This is what we're going to do And it was one of the rare times that we would do something together.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest things about most of these games is that I only play them with people I would also just hang out with. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to go play some tabletop games with people who I actively dislike. Uh, It's it's all about spending time together and actually having fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Which you're your wanting the power to go out story reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and kind of going off of that, there are some benefits of tabletop gaming. Um, it has a couple of health benefits. It can be a therapeutic activity that is beneficial for teens or children or adults to learn how to socialize. I personally got into D&D last year as a way to help manage my CPTSD and I also used it to help me figure out the ending of the book I was writing and I <laughs> absolutely figured out the ending right away after the first session I think because I was playing the main character of the book and I knew what she would do right away.
1: Yeah. Mhm. That's awesome. I I didn't ever I didn't get into gaming as a way to deal with my anxiety but universally if i show up at game night and i am just a ball of anxiety i feel better by the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> sometimes i mean sometimes it's just that when we are in this fantasy world there are predictable rules that that govern the world and yeah. being there is kind of comforting and then sometimes it's more like i got to take out my aggression by lighting some evil things on fire <laughs>
0: Yeah, that surprisingly does help release some aggression, I've found. Yeah. Another thing that it does is playing these games can help promote empathy. It can help kids in the development of memory and cognitive skills, like problem solving. I would also say, especially in role-playing games, creativity, storytelling, teamwork, improvisation, adaptability, and confidence— I can say Confidence, that was a big one for me playing D&D in the beginning because I was so nervous about it. Yeah. I guess my character does this. (laughs) But it's been like a year and a half now, and I'm very much more like, she throws a bomb at that person.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that just reminded me of hearing Temple Grandin talk about, um, Temple Grandin is an animal husbandry expert who is also autistic. And she talked about one of the ways that she really learned to interact with people was that she and her family played games when she was little um, that involved a lot of rules and a lot of taking turns and a lot of having sort of predictable actions that were Mm -hmm. supposed to happen. And that really helped her learn ways to interact with other people.
0: Yeah, um, I could see that. Uh, Another thing is if you're running the game, which is sometimes called like GM, Game Mastering, or DM in the case of D&D, Dungeon Master. You can add project management and organizational skills to the mix. I can say, as I'm preparing to do this right now, so much yes. (laughs) (laughs) And just trying to predict what a group of very different people is going to do and then knowing in the back of my head that really I can't predict it. I can try my best. Yeah. It is. like I feel like I'm running a, a project right now. Yeah.
1: One of the worst um, tabletop gaming experiences I've ever had was way back in college, where it was everybody's early time. Like, none of us had a lot of experience either playing the game or running the game. It was a whole group of very inexperienced people. But the DM expected us to do something, and we just did not do that thing. And Mm -hmm. he was completely unprepared for that (laughs) eventuality. And then we all died, and oh. then everyone was mad at everyone. <laughs> and <then> we, just, <laughs> they, we just didn't play that again for a while.
0: <laughs> yeah, you had to take a step back. We had a yeah. similar experience happen recently where um, we, it was kind of like the trolley car problem. We were faced with the fact that either the entire party was going to die, or we were going to fail our mission, and the town we were supposed to be saving, they were all going to die. And uh, we chose to save ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, we kept kind of mentioning and passing, I can't stop thinking about that village. And it's an imaginary village. but yeah. You feel it. You, you get invested in it.
1: Yeah, we had a really similar uh, thing in one of the games that I'm playing, which is based on a system called Fate. And in Fate, your characters have different aspects, and you figure out what they are kind of collaboratively, and then you, the, your actions in the game a lot of times are connected to them. And we are in this sort of post-apocalyptic world where we have just had a series of we show up somewhere, a bad thing's happening, we fix the bad thing, but at what cost? Uh-huh. And there was one time when it, it, the options were we fail at doing this or we burn this place down. And without hesitation, we were like, we're just going to have to burn it down. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the only thing that's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe um,
0: just in case anyone listening is unsure of what is involved in playing like D&D or role-playing game, it's essentially somebody designs a game or you can find pre-designed games online. And then you, all the players have a character that they can role play. Some people don't like to, the actual role playing bit, but you can act as much as you want on there. And then you're in a group, and you sort of—it's—I don't know—like a, a board game, but you're the you're the pieces moving around, and you yeah. talk with each other and um, try to figure out what your character would do, and you get missions like save a town from a dragon that sometimes you fail and the whole town gets burned.
1: It's kind of like when you're a kid and you are playing make-believe when, with your friends, mm-hmm. but there's a structure to yes. kind of guide your collaborative make-believe.
0: Yes. Yeah, There, there's a lot of um, <laughs> rules, rule books. Uh, there is some, you know, calculation of of health points and math involved. Um and that's one thing, which we'll get into more later, but that's one thing that kept me from it for a while is because I thought it, it looked so complicated.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are there can be, not necessarily, there can be many different types of dice.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I asked for dice for my mom last year for Christmas, and she got me. I must have hundreds of dice. She got me way too many. <laughs> I'm very thankful, but uh, it kind of cracks me up every time. No shortage of dice choices. Nope. But if we go back to the possible health benefits, why talking about this matters at all, um, another thing it can do is reduce stress, sort of what we were talking about before. Unless you're playing something like Monopoly, or I would add Risk. Risk was a very stressful endeavor for me and my siblings growing up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, My husband likes to play a game called Spirit Island, and I love the idea of the game because a, a lot of... Games have this setting where it's sort of like you're the colonizers and the goal is to colonize this place. And Spirit Island is the opposite. Like you are the spirits of this island and you're working with its indigenous inhabitants to drive the colonizers away. And I'm like, I'm on board. I'm on board with that. Mm -hmm. But it's a game that has so many layers of things going on that I'm also like, this is a little more complex (laughs) that I want to spend my, my fun time on. Yeah, and that's something that I think people who aren't
0: involved in tabletop gaming might not realize is there are so many options out there for you. And I have friends who don't or haven't previously liked tabletop gaming because they they don't like competition, they're not competitive, stresses mm-hmm. them out. But there are so many games that aren't that way. And um, um, we're going to give some recommendations at the end. And one of the ones that I'm going to recommend is... It's, like, more cooperative.
1: Yeah, there's a whole genre of cooperative games. And for, if people watch Parks and Rec and they've seen that episode about the Cones of Dunshire and they think <laughs> yeah. that's what all these games are like, like, there are games that are kind of like the Cones of Dunshire. Yeah. A lot of them are way more chill and are more like a, an elegant but challenging simple system. <laughs> right.
0: I'd forgotten about the Cones of Dun- Dunshire. I was... <laughs> Recently reminded of the 30 Rock version, which is like colonizers of, I don't know, but it's, it's settlers of Catan. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, a, a 2003 study out of the New England Journal of Medicine linked playing board games with decreased risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. And I just wanted to throw this in, there, in here because I thought it was so interesting. Students at Gettysburg College use Clue as a way to practice creating an AI.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. While while we were getting ready for this episode, a thing that I meant to mention earlier was that there's also a study about mahjong mm-hmm. and older people and um, like people in retirement communities and it helping both with hand-eye coordination and with uh, basically having less stress and more social activity, which I thought was really cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. If we look at numbers... It seems that more and more people are getting into tabletop gaming. If you look at the hobby gaming market, which includes collectibles like Pokemon cards and dice, board games, role playing games, and miniatures, between 2014 and 2016, sales doubled. Money wise, that's an increase from 800 million to 1.4 billion. And I do want to mention about miniatures here. So, if you're playing something like D and D, you can get these. Um, miniatures. They're little figurines, and you can use that to represent your character to move around. And that is another area where you can be, I've seen people do amazing artistic creative stuff. I have my own little miniature. I painted it. It's not great, yeah. but I had fun doing it.
1: <laughs> I have i have my one uh, sort of adequately painted miniature. My husband plays some games that are totally based in miniatures, so he has these whole armies of painted Miniatures. He finds the painting part really relaxing, and he hasn't been playing them as much recently. And I'm like, "There's a whole. We have a whole shelf full of man's over here. Like, (laughs) you gonna play with
0: them? They're ready to go. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, And
0: sort of a way I think to to see the growth of tabletop gaming is through these board game cafes and bars, which I have seen more and more of. Um, there's Gen Con, which is the largest gaming convention in the United States. It's over 50 years old, and attendance broke records in 2017. Now, I've never been. Have you been,
1: Tracy? I have not been. I have been to other conventions that have tabletop gaming like, as a big component. But at about the same time that I had enough interest and enough different types of games that I wanted to go to an event just for that, I also had become way less enamored with giant conventions Mm -hmm. and a lot happier at smaller events. Uh, One of my favorite, not even one of my, my absolute favorite vacation every year is that a bunch of friends rent a big old house out in the Poconos, and we go out there for a long weekend and play a bunch of games and, like, hang out, and it's awesome. It's like 35 people... Not thirty five thousand people, <laughs>
0: <laughs> much more manageable crowd size. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that and then also, lovely. if you just want to read a book, nobody's going to bother you. It's fine, <laughs> right?
0: You can you can step away more easily should you so desire. If we look at the number of female tabletop gamers, data is difficult to come by. We can safely assume that more women are playing now than previously, as more people are playing in general. At 2016's Gen Con, over half the speakers were women. And that's huge considering that in 2011, only one of the speakers was female. Which is I, not enough. <laughs> no, no. And I bet some of you will remember this from uh, your social media feeds. A 2015 panel at Gen Con called Writing Women-Friendly Comics at first had no women on the panel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, since I know several game developers, many of them are women, and they've been doing this thing where they go and submit a bunch of panels to conventions, and they don't really announce that they are submitting a whole bunch of panels that only have women and non-binary people on them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They just sneak it in there, and then people show up, and it's a panel that is all women and non-binary folks, and they're like, oh, this is awesome. This is a bunch of women, and they're talking about something besides being women in this space. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Because we can talk about other things. Uh, That is true. Yes. Um, But that is, at least in my head, and I would guess a lot of people's heads, that's the stereotype if you think of a tabletop gamer, it's a youngish white male. Yeah.
1: And the conventions I have been to are like youngish white males are the largest demographic. Like not the only demographic, but... For sure, the biggest one. hmm And there are a
0: few informal surveys out there that suggest people who identify as women make up only 10 to 20% of board game players, and that the majority of the respondents in these surveys um, are white.
1: Yeah, I always wonder, sort of what we were talking about the, at the beginning with video games, is how people are defining what counts as a board game player. Yeah. Because a lot of the studies that suggest that men are overwhelmingly the people playing video games are just disregarding the games that are most popular among women. Right. And so I kind of wonder if if these definitions are including things like party games that women might be playing more than they might be playing, you know, Settlers of Catan, right? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe so. Maybe yeah. it might be a little closer. I mean, I know as kids, games are for everyone, and then it's it's in adulthood that suddenly it seems like there is a world of specialty game stores that um, have a, a largely often male demographic.
0: Yeah, and while I was looking into the research for this episode there, it's kind of a new area of academic study, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of people have been writing about it and are writing about it. And from what I read, several women said I know that this is the stereotype but that's not been my experience um I've always had women people of color playing in my in my group yeah which is interesting yeah
1: yeah when it comes to the people that I personally know and hang out with um but it's not just a, an overwhelmingly male scene it's it's when i get into a gigantic group of people at something like a convention. And I just, I don't think that's totally reflective of who's really playing games.
0: Right. And I always think in surveys like the one we're discussing, a lot of times they're self-selecting who's right. going to answer that survey. Yeah. It might more likely be this type of like yeah. white, young white male. Um, but we do have some more concrete numbers on the development side The 25 best-selling board games in 2016 were all designed by men, and the 19 nominees for Game of the Year awards between 2014 and 2016, of those, none of them identified as women. And you, Tracy, have put me in touch with some amazing women in the space, and we're going to do a whole follow-up episode on the development side of tabletop gaming.
1: I'm very excited excited about that. Those are some of my favorite people. I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say. Thank you. Two of them are people I talk to literally every day of my life. Yes.
0: <laughs> so excited. Um so so we'll we'll come back to we'll, we'll follow up with that. Um yeah. For me when I first got into tabletop gaming, especially something like D&D, I was very intimidated by it. I remember distinctly being at Dragon Con a couple of years ago and um me and some new friends were discussing what kind of games we enjoyed and when these new friends of mine who were all men asked if I liked tabletop games like D&D. Before, before he'd even finished asking the question, I was like frantically shaking my head. Um, and I have looked back at that moment and tried to get to the bottom of why I felt that way and why I felt so intimidated. And I do think it's because I thought it was something for mostly dudes who wouldn't have the patience to teach me, mm. um, who wouldn't want to play with me, who might be sexist or mean if I did play with them, and then kind of expect me to just, oh, this is the game. It's fun. Um, and I, like I said, I also thought I'd be really complicated to get into, and it sort of stressed me out, the thought of uh, acting or improv Even though I'm somebody who does that, like I act and I do improv, uh, for some reason, the, the idea of having to do it with a group of people really made me nervous. But you don't have to. That is one thing. You can do that stuff uh, to the level of your comfort.
1: Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I had a, a related but slightly different response to the same, not exactly, fe- the same perception. Mm-hmm. Because... In my college years and early 20s, my gaming life was sort of rooted in some internalized misogyny because I had that whole idea that a lot of things that were typically feminine were bad and that there was some kind of value in being, in quotation marks, not like the other girls. Right. So I was mostly hanging out with men and I was mostly hanging out with men because I sort of felt like somehow women weren't as fun to hang out with. All of this was incorrect. I missed out on, like, some amazing friendships because yeah. of this, like, internal baggage. But that meant that I was mostly hanging out with guys, and I was mostly hanging out with guys who were playing a very particular style of of board gaming and and role-playing games specifically. And it wasn't until I got probably into my 30s that I was like, oh, wait, there is a whole world of games beyond that that is more welcoming to more types of people than what was back there before. And, you know, then I also started working on my whole internalized <laughs> misogyny problem.
0: You know, one step at a time. I, I yeah. had a similar thing with video games where I felt like it somehow made me, like I wore like a badge of honor that I was playing these video games with, with all men. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me to get into tabletop gaming, I do owe a lot of people, some men, some women, but it sort of felt like it happened all at once that everybody was telling me, you've got to play this board game that I've never heard of and you got to play this Mm -hmm. board game that I've never heard of. I don't know if there was just some surge of popularity somewhere, but I owe a lot of friends for introducing me to all of these amazing games and, and sort of to this whole world. That was out there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you and I are not the only ones who have felt that tabletop games were not for us. And we'll get into some reasons why after a quick break for word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Like a lot of our media, tabletop games do not have the best track record with positive female portrayals and providing diverse characters. Games that have a lesser amount of female characters, if any. Um, we mentioned in our episode around female action figures that Hasbro got in some hot water for leaving the female character Ray out of the newest version of Star Wars Monopoly, and my favorite part of that was their response She'll be in other games? Yes, like, that's <laughs> not a great answer. We'll put her in a future game. She's not in a here now. And it was they replaced her with a stormtrooper. It was a character. Of, she's, a, she's a big character for those that don't know. <laughs> um, for her not to be included was a pretty big deal. Right. Perhaps there are female characters, but they are overly sexualized, or they are relegated to traditionally female less active roles.
1: Yeah. It's like you'll have a game that's based on cards with characters drawn on them, and for some reason, the women are all teachers and secretaries. Right. Why would that be?
0: I I can't imagine. Or, um, I always love the critique of when armor is so sexualized, and clearly that's not going to help you in a fighting situation. Um, it's kind of a running joke and yet we still continue to see it. And I will say I got no problem if you want to in a game like D&D create a sexy character. I'm I'm all for it. But if if that's like we're seeing this in the official media of the game then that is a problem. Right. Instruction manuals have been called out too for using he to refer to all players. And this is improving, but slowly. And (laughs) We have come a long way, though, because some of the first articles written by playtesters about D&D in the 70s came with gems like this one. There will be four major groups in which women may enter. They may be fighters, magic users, thieves, and clerics. They may progress to the level of men in the area of magic and, in some ways, surpass men as thieves. Elven women may rise especially to high levels in clerics to the elves. Only as fighters are women clearly behind men in all cases, but even they have at- attributes that their male characters do not. And this article goes on to say that female characters' true strength lies with the beauty part of their charisma score. So D&D, your character has these six ability scores. One of them is charisma. As far as I know, the beauty thing isn't there anymore.
1: <laughs> no. no. Well, and also now women don't, or female characters don't, innately get one less strength because they are female, right? Which is a That's positive. A thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, but this this
0: beauty part of the Christmas score that is no longer with us gave women, female characters, abilities such as charm, men, seduction, horrid beauty, and worship.
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't need that.
0: No. Uh, There are
1: also campaign settings. I mean, you can still go and buy uh, copies of old campaign settings from earlier versions of D&D. And sometimes there are guidelines on how to adapt them to the newest rule system. mm -hmm. And you can find some where it's like, okay, all of the characters who are all presumed to to be male walk into this room where there is a siren who is going to charm everybody, and, like, it's now the bad bad guy is a woman, and the woman's power is that she's just way too sexy. And... Oh. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) The newest version did come up as an example of a positive improvement when I was researching this in that it suggests that players should think outside of the binary box, essentially. Um, You can be... You can create... Whatever character you want to create, um, it doesn't have to be human. It could be all kinds of things. In 2016, the Kickstarter for One Deck Dungeon made $122,000. Its starting goal was $20,000. So, way surpassed that. And of note, all of the images of playable characters were of strong, diverse women. But, of course, not everyone was excited about this. Some reviewers on Amazon called the game sexist or labeled it as misandry. It looks cool.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, and we keep seeing that same basic thing play out where uh, something will come along that has an all-female cast and it will break box office records or become a bestseller or whatever. And then there will be this whole conversation of... Can women really dominate at the box office? Yes. Why do we keep oh. having this conversation? I know. I.
0: That is a pet peeve of mine. Back to Tabletop Gaming. PASCO host Kristen and I went to this Women in Gaming event at the Museum of Design Atlanta a couple of years ago. Uh, you can find the video online on YouTube. And it was one of, my favorite, one of my favorite parts of this whole exhibit was a section on old board games, And of the games, that included women. So many of them were women in domestic roles, or women trying to find a husband before the other players. That was how you won, is you found a husband first. One in particular featured all the jobs that a woman could have in this board game's mind (laughs) at the time, and they were secretary, teacher, flight attendant, nurse, princess, or ballerina. All right, then. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with any of those uh, occupations, but I I feel that uh, women perhaps can do other types of things.
1: I think possibly, like design games.
0: Possibly. And um, we've said it time and time again on this show, but seeing yourself represented is important. That's not, not even just me saying it. There have been studies that show that, bear that out. Um, Not seeing yourself can lead to feelings of disempowerment, invisibility, or insignificance on an individual level, on a community level, and it can lead to decisions made based on who we see or don't see on a societal level. Like, people in power will make decisions based on perceived, like, representation, how they think that must be the truth in society. So if all you're seeing are white men, then you're going to make decisions based on the fact that there are way more white men than there actually are. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, think of all the cool and diverse media that we're missing out on. There's a lot of it. There is. There is. And there was this study that you found, Tracy, looking into gender and racial representation when it comes to the illustrators and designers of the top 200 board games as ranked by Board Game Geek. And it came out. Like this month, December 2018. Yeah. So it's pretty recent.
1: Yeah, you and I had scheduled this recording and I saw it. I saw people talking about it on Twitter and said, okay, need to bring <laughs> this up <laughs> right. for that episode. Excellent timing. Yeah. And
0: what it found is probably what you might expect. The din- designers and illustrators were overwhelmingly white men of these 200 games, and that this was reflected in the artwork, which disproportionately is of white men. The numbers on this vary depending on the source, but it also found a majority of the players were also white men. The author does acknowledge the limitation of this work and calls for more research, but it's definitely worth checking out if um, this is something that is at all of interest to you.
1: Yeah, because it's one of those things that's drawing from Board Game Geek as a resource. Yeah. If you're not familiar with that... It's sort of like if you were trying to look at trends in movies based on their uh, where they were ranked on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like that would be sort of a, a comparable thing. So there are a whole lot of movies out in the world that for whatever reason are not up at the top of IMDb. So it gets a little bit of a skewed data set to start with. Mm-hmm. But still super interesting. Yeah. Um, and it... It
0: references a study that came out a couple of years ago that found that board games are more likely to feature a sheep on the cover than a woman. And this study found that, at least according to to the data um, the study author was looking at, that is true. Aliens and barnyard animals like sheep grace the cover art of board games at a higher rate than women do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some of those games are great. Like, no... They're no, oh, sure. no criticizing of those games as a thing, but it is a pattern. <laughs> it's it, a little disturbing.
0: Yes. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. Something else I found a lot of accounts of online, but have never personally run into myself is women running into a lot of misogyny when playing an RPG game like D and D. Male players oversexualizing the female character that the female player is playing, or are maybe themselves playing a female character. And then over sexualizing her or making her do stupid things, things like that. Um, and I know I do know people personally who have lost friends over things like this. I've never experienced it personally, but I do know people that have. Um, there are a couple of bars in Atlanta that do DD nights where you can drop in and play. And I've done it once at so it's more likely to be strangers that you're playing with. And I had a good time when I did it, but I generally avoid them because I do have this suspicion that I would run into something like that or people who will pick fights over the rules or um, like you said, it, it's a fun thing, and I think with friends it's much more relaxed. but I have noticed I've gone out of my way to avoid going to them, even if I think they I want to play and I think they could be fun, because I do have this fear that I would run into this thing that we're describing right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, especially since I know so many women who develop games, a lot of them go to game conventions all the time and are running games for a ton of people all the time because they're they're demonstrating their game. And so I've heard a lot of stories about that kind of, you know, either comments that are inappropriate or sexualizing uh, encounters between characters in a game when that's not really necessary. And I think because I play almost exclusively with people that I'm already friends with and want to hang out with, I don't really have that experience. The thing that I do have sometimes, even though, like, most of the guys I know try really hard to be self-aware and to, to not just steamroll over everyone in the room... Especially when I'm at a game where I'm either the only woman at the table or there's only one other woman at the table, sometimes it does feel like the guys are dominating the situation. Um, and and normally, if we're like, "Hey guys, yeah, we're also here, right? We also can help make the decision of what we're going to do against this monster," uh, they'll be like, "All oh, right." So that's it's a thing. It's a process, though. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point because I have definitely encountered being talked over or interrupted by dudes when I'm playing. Um, and I think it is a combination of me not having the confidence to speak up as loudly as they do, but also, yeah, just kind of a lack of awareness. But I think if you're playing with someone who is new, then maybe keep that in mind, especially if you're running the game, just checking in to see maybe this person just needs a little more encouragement or needs mm-hmm. sort of a, a push because I'm, I'm a quiet person in general, and a lot of times I'm, I'm happy to um, let other people be the loud ones. But at the same time, if I am trying to say something, <laughs> I should like to be heard. Right. Mm-hmm. Several articles I read encouraged... Dungeon Masters, so again, these folks that are running the D&D campaigns, to make sure that they are putting female characters in positions of power in the game that they're designing instead of relegating them to things like Barmaid. I've also read plenty of accounts of female DMs facing constant questioning by male players, which does not surprise me at all. I've never Mm -hmm. seen it, but I believe it completely. Similarly, several women I was reading accounts about online, that they would go into gaming stores and almost immediately would be asked if they were shopping for their boyfriend, if they need any help. The assumption that a woman couldn't possibly be there for herself.
1: Yeah. When I lived in Asheville, there was a place that I went that was a combination games, comics, and music store. And the first few times that I went in there the assumption was that i was there for the music which sometimes i was mm-hmm. there for the music but i was also there for the comics and the games yeah. um and and i remember at one walking in i mean this has been well over a decade ago so like don't go find that place and yell at them but uh, i remember walking in at one point and somebody being like the music's over there and i was there to pick up my weekly pulls of my comic books it's <laughs> <laughs> like just not good
0: no, um, I've, I've definitely experienced that in the realm of comics too, and I've spoken about it on the show before, but what really bothers me is once you sort of pass this test and proved that, oh yes, I do read these things, then I almost always would get asked out. <laughs> 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 is this your only, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> she reads comic books. Oh. Uh. Sometimes I would just start pretending like, no, this isn't for me (laughs) to be left alone. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing we have to talk about, unfortunately, is sexual harassment. In 2014, a Canadian tabletop gamer named Emily Garland posted a piece on Tumblr called Tabletop Gaming Has a White Male Terrorist Problem. And as you can imagine from the title, it got a lot of attention.
1: I remember when this came out. Do you? Yeah. I do not remember it. Yeah. Well, and I remember, in a good way, a lot of the men in my life passing it around amongst themselves. Like, guys, this is a problem that we need to proactively be handling. So go on. Yeah, that's great. Um, She
0: wrote in this Tumblr post, White male terrorism is the white underbelly of the gaming community meant to terrify and disrupt the lives of those who threaten the status quo by race, gender, or sexuality. And you can find the article online if you want to read it. It's pretty upsetting, but it is worth a read. She identifies three main concerns, sexual harassment, exclusion of women who are vocal about marginalization and unfair treatment, and a failure of the tabletop gaming industry as a whole to speak out about things like GamerGate. And she won a sexual harassment lawsuit against a gaming store that she worked in that same year. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is not a pleasant read at no, all. No,
0: It is not. Um, definitely know that going in but it's, it's worth reading especially if you're somebody that is a part of the tabletop gaming community I would say mm-hmm. check it out and something I saw in a lot of places that so often the response to all of this everything we're talking about um, is but for, from people who don't want the community to change um, go play something else If it bothers you, don't make this fun hobby political, but it's about making this fun hobby uh, and beneficial activity more inclusive and better for everybody. And in light of that, we have some recommendations and resources for you. But first, one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we're back with some game recommendations. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I love Pandemic, and it's this so good. It's so good, um, and it's hard, and I love it. There's like eight ways to lose and only one way to win, and it's cooperative too. Like we were saying in the beginning, um, some people who don't like competition, you are competing against the game. It's pretty tense. I'm not yeah. gonna like sugarcoat it, but you aren't competing against your friends.
1: Right. Your friends are working with you to try to stop the illness. Yes.
0: (laughs) One thing I love about this game is um, a lot of times when I'll have people over and we have all this entertainment available to us, friends of mine who aren't that into tabletop gaming in general will request that we play Pandemic. It is Mm -hmm. like a fun crowd pleaser. It has an equal number of male to female characters who aren't sexualized. They're dressed appropriately for their job. Um, And the jobs are things like scientists and quarantine specialists. It's so fun. And you can play it with just two players, too. That's another thing I love about it.
1: I have lost it spectacularly with just (laughs) two players.
0: I have, too. I once, um... Like, we were doing fine... Um, and I, I don't want to go too much in the mechanics here, but basically we drew one card and we went from fine to we lost. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I think this was like three turns into the game, and we just had really bad luck. And it was like this: this outbreak has spread, and the world is over. We, I think, uh, I think one of the mechanics is you have these little black cubes that represent the. The illness. Mm-hmm. And if you run out of them, right. game over. Yes. And we ran out of them in just an amazingly short amount of time. <laughs> yeah. And I um
0: have lost. There are these like little tiny cubes, and I've lost one. And the game, the difficulty level is such that it comes close enough that I made a note saying, I am missing one of these cubes. One. So if that's what it comes down to. <laughs> I want everyone to know that you have one cube that is not there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh I got to have a couple caveats with the one that I'm going to recommend next mm-hmm. um, because it is based on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. It's called Marrying Mr. Darcy. It's a card game. Since it is based on Pride and Prejudice, all the characters are white, and the goal of the game is to marry the right person. So... <laughs> Like, let's just get that out on the table. However, it has the same sense of humor that Jane Austen's writing does. So the it's a card game, and the cards have just these very wry, witty instructions of, of what's going on in the game. Um, you also do not have to get married in order to win the game. It is completely possible to uh, win the game by not getting married. And... Is uh, it's accessible to people even if they have no familiarity with Jane Austen. So when I very first moved to Massachusetts, uh, my husband, who at that time was my boyfriend, had gone out of town, and I didn't really know many people here very well yet. And this friend of his said, come over and play games with us. And I was like, I'm going to take marrying Mr. Darcy, because I thought when he said us, he meant me and my wife. But what he really (laughs) meant was... (laughs) Me and these two other dudes. So (laughs) it became me and these three dudes playing a game based on Pride and Prejudice. And everybody had a great time. So That
0: sounds wonderful.
1: It was great. My
0: friends would love that game for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if, if I totally get why, uh, like, people might not be into the idea of playing a game where all the characters are white and the goal <laughs> is to get married. Like, I get, like, that might not be for you. But if that's for you, yes, then it's probably really for you. Uh, I have another one that um, is a lot more diverse in its representation. And it is called the T Dragon Society Card Game. And it's based on a graphic novel by Katie O'Neill, that is called the T Dragon Society. And that graphic novel is full of LGBTQ characters and characters of color. And this is another card game where your goal is to raise these little tea dragons. And the dragons are adorable and the art is adorable. And the characters, the, the more humanoid characters, one of them is, is not strictly human, but they are also adorable. Um, and even if you're not playing with little kids, I think the age range is 10 and up. Um, if if you are into the idea of taking care of some adorable little dragons, <laughs> you can be a room full, like a table full of adults, and it will still be great. <laughs> um, one that my
0: friends love um, is called Dixit, which I describe as apples to apples, but with beautiful art. And again, this is this group of friends particularly that loves it. They don't really like tabletop games. In general, they don't like the competitive aspect of it, but they love this one and they love the art of it. And it's real. I find it really funny because I get frustrated playing with them. I, I also get frustrated playing apples to apples because I'm very uh, I'm very competitive,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I I'll get angry if I can't see what you're seeing. <laughs> <laughs> like explain
1: to me how that represents being lost, please. Yeah, um, but they all well, love it, <laughs> and both. Dixit and Apples to Apples can uh, be really interesting to play when when you either know everyone at the table really, really well oh, yeah. or when you don't know everyone at the table really, really well. Because if you know two people and you don't know everyone else, then like you might know enough about how that person thinks mm-hmm. to to figure out what they're doing right. a lot more easily.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. I've known these, this group of friends since elementary school. And for some reason I can't get a beat on what they're seeing when they're looking at these beautifully the art is really beautiful with that game. It is. It's beautiful
1: um, and kind of abstract.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also love Betrayal at the House on the Hill, which is a game where your your group explores a haunted house together, and about halfway through you trigger a haunt. And depending on a couple of circumstances, one of the players becomes a traitor and you're sort of working against that player and then whatever demon haunt, whatever it is that they are working with. Um, And there's something like 60
1: scenarios. So Annie, do you know about Betrayal Legacy? I do, but only a little bit. Tell me about it. I can tell you about it because I tested that game. Did you really? I did. I am listed in the credits. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm, like, um, so excited about this. Oh, I am really excited, too. I had actually been like, should I talk about Betrayal? Should yes. Should I talk about Betrayal Legacy? You, and then you went and put it on the list. I'm so excited. Okay, so what Annie just said. That's that's still the basic mechanics. You have a haunted house that you're exploring and something happens that triggers a haunt and somebody who is playing with you becomes a traitor. And the, uh, Betrayal Legacy works the same way that other legacy games do, which is that as you play, the game itself changes. So you might have... Uh, Like the first time you play, this is made up, I'm not spoiling anything in the game, but like the first time you play, a particular character dies in a particular room. Well, that room might now, the next time you play, have something different about it because that happened in that room the last time. And so it is, I think, 13 chapters. Each chapter takes place in a different year. So you're in this haunted house through time. And then once you get all through those 13 sort of foundational games, there is a free play mode where you can play all of these other scenarios in the same game. So um, because it's a horror game, it does have some, you know, some of the same horror tropes mm-hmm. that I think some people might not enjoy. Like if you're not going to enjoy a game that has a bunch of murder in it, then <laughs> right. um, maybe not this one for you. But if you are into horror movies and horror books and settings that are full of ghosts and monsters and scary things, then uh, I highly recommend it.
0: Oh Yeah, I have to check out Legacy now. I, I've been wanting to, but now I've got to. I'm going <laughs> to add it to our rotation at game night here. And it that is the perfect launching point for our next section, which is resources, because recently we did play Betrayal at the House on the Hill. And... It's kind of a rule here, and it also just kind of makes sense that if it's your game, then you're the one that sort of explains it, makes sure it runs smoothly. It's my game, um, and people voted to play it, but I hadn't played it in a while. So I wanted to brush up on the rules, and one of the first things I did was I got online and watched the tabletop with Will Wheaton episode on playing Betrayal at House on the Hill to refresh my memory, and this is an online video series I watch it on YouTube where people play tabletop games. A lot of times they're celebrities. And it sounds boring, I know, but it's usually pretty entertaining. And it's it's just good to see people actually playing it because reading the instructions can feel really dense, especially on a game like Betrayal at the House on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing it kind of play out, for me yeah. at least, is very helpful.
1: Yeah, I, I have found that very helpful for seeing how the game is played when there's not somebody experienced around to tell you how the game is played. And then it can be super entertaining. Sometimes the things that happen as they are playing are hilarious.
0: Yeah. I seem to recall when they were playing uh, Ticket to Ride. Disaster That's the story, story. I was
1: going to tell.
0: <laughs> it's, I, I guess it's well known among the tabletop music. Well, I remember
1: it vividly. As I think it's one of those, like, this disaster happens in the middle of the game, and then there is a slow-motion replay of the disaster.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, go check out the episode... Uh, on uh, Ticket to Ride if you want to find out what that disaster was. Um, on top of that, there's so many things out there. There's so many things. There's podcasts, Twitch channels, YouTube shows. You've got Becca Scott over at the Twitch channel, Game the Game, Brittany Bow or Bebo over at Game Wire, Board Game Breakfast on the YouTube channel, The Dice Tower. The amount of content out there on D&D alone is staggering. So there are if you're intimidated or you feel like you would just you 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 would feel better if you had visual examples or just hearing people talk about playing there there's stuff for you out there
1: yeah and if just watching or listening to someone's role playing campaign sounds interesting to you there are options for that too
0: yes there are i've thought about I don't want to turn it into work as a thing, but I thought about recording our D and D sessions with our our office campaign just because.
1: Yeah, they are quite interesting. Thought about yeah, I've thought about pitching some kind of RPG podcast, and because I have had too much other podcast work to do, that's never right. been a thing that's come to fruition.
0: I would be so into that. Um, There's also Contessa, which is a nonprofit founded in 2012 to make the tabletop gaming space for marginalized folks uh, more diverse and providing a space for them to run games. So if you're interested in running a game, you can check them out or in getting involved in this at all. They have a lot of opportunities around that. So I, I feel like we're about at the end of this exploration into tabletop gaming. I think so. I think so. To wrap things up, there's a lot of things going on in the world of tabletop gaming, and there are clearly areas where the industry can improve, and it makes me sad that people have been turned away from something that can be so fun and perhaps physically and mentally beneficial because they didn't feel welcome. So I'm really hoping that that will change and that Maybe, maybe somebody listening to this who's been interested in it but hasn't done it for one reason or the other, maybe this episode has inspired you to go check it out.
1: Yeah. Even if you are not really into the idea of going to a gigantic convention and spending the whole weekend there... Uh, a lot of times the people that actually develop these games are working on the dealer's floor at booths, like, with their games to personally show you how to play, or somebody that they know really well is is going to personally show you how to game play the game. So at least doing a walkthrough and seeing what games are being played and what looks fun can be really awesome.
0: Yeah, because as we said, there are so many games out there, all kinds of games that You may be unaware of, but there are options, options, options. (laughs) And uh, we will follow up with an episode about the development aspect of gaming. So look out for that. Um, In the meantime, thank you so much, Tracy, for joining us. This has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you. I've had a really good time. Yeah. I really want to play some games now. (laughs) We got to go back to work, though. Uh, Alas.
1: Where can people find you, Tracy? Uh, well, I co-host Stuff You Missed in History Class with Holly Fry, and so the easiest way to get me is at the Stuff You Missed in History Class email, which is historypodcast at howstuffworks dot com, and then we're all over social media at Missed in History. Uh, I'm also personally on Twitter, but I'm often not looking. At Mm -hmm. my mentions. Yeah, I'm the same. (laughs) So, yeah, sometimes I'll see that somebody has said something, like, asked me a question or said something nice, and I'm like, I did not. That was a week ago. Whoops.
0: Yeah, I really have to build myself up to go on social media. I do. Don't let that deter you from contacting me, but it's like a once a week here we yeah. go, type situation. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I spend a lot of time just scrolling to the top of the Twitter feed and being like, what's happening right now? Okay, yeah. putting this away. Right. <laughs> you can also email this show at
0: momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuff mom never told you. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening.